here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller and we are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley the Spice Radio Studios in Huntsville Alabama today don't forget about the letter carriers food drive one week from today Lee Hedgepeth joins to talk about journalism in Alabama every day should be Labor Day all that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can give us a call at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail or send us a text message throughout the week and we might reply on the next program. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then make sure you follow us online. We are anywhere you find anything online, all at the Valley Labor Report. But in particular, make sure that you're bookmarking our website, tblr.fm. That website is updated every day with new content, articles, write-ups of our clips, uh, good stuff that you can share with your friends and family. Uh, just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest Single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining donor, uh, if you want to make a one-time donation, sort of as a clip for a particularly good segment, or buy our merch, you can, again, do that all at our website. You can donate to the show at tvlr.fm slash donate, and you can buy our merch at tvlr.fm slash store. And we have our new shirts in. The shirts that we uh, that that we had on pre-order a while back, I don't know if you can you should be able to see that on the stream. Obviously, if you're just listening to us on the radio, you're not going to be able to see it. But it's a really good shirt, union made in America, uh, and it's not just the typical like super harsh kind of Gildan style T-shirts. They're really nice. They're soft. They're sturdy. Uh, Really, really good stuff. So uh, I'm excited to get those out to folks, and uh, I believe that people will like them. Uh, and we ordered about 20 extra. We ordered about 20 extra. So uh, if you want to go on our store and get and snag one of those before they're gone, you can do that. TBLR.fm/store. And uh, if you bought a if you bought a shirt, you should be getting it in the next uh, five to ten business days. 
Um, if you're a member of a union, uh, then definitely think about getting your local to sponsor the show. Uh, our local union sponsors are very important, and uh, we would not be able to do it without them. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out for more details on that. Uh, we'd be happy to answer any questions that you or your executive board might have. We are happy to speak to the membership uh, at a general membership meeting or at a conference or um, anything like that. Happy to do that. Absolutely. Thank you to all those sponsors. Let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions uh, expressed in this program belong solely to their author, do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. And we are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check it out. Oh, right. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. Uh, yeah, so today, uh, Porch Fest. Porch Fest is happening in Five Points here in Huntsville. Uh, I'm Lord Willen, I'm going to be there. And obviously, um, part of the show, Ben Job, owner of Spice Radio Studios, he is the uh, the Porch Fest czar. <laughs> so uh, tell us, uh, give us one more reminder about what folks are going to be able to see if they go to Pratt Avenue today from 5 to 9 p.m. Yes, y'all. It's it's uh, Pratt Avenue. It's the same as U- University Drive. If you just keep going east, southeast towards town, you're going to hit Porch Fest because uh, they're shutting down the road this year. I'm very excited because uh, there was so many so many musicians, kids, and dogs uh, running around, set up all over the street. The streets were full last year, and I expect it to be super packed today because the uh, weather has cleared up. But yeah, the, some amazing uh, uh, sample tray of of all different types of amazing local music flavors. Um, I definitely I have a couple recommendations. Um, if you've heard of the Invisible City. The host is playing a solo show at 5 p.m. Brad Posey uh, will be at Porch 210. And uh, don't worry about the porch numbers because you can pretty much uh, walk the entirety of the festival without having to uh, leave Mm. the thing. And there's porta potty set up along the outside, and there'll be food trucks as well. So uh, I believe uh, coolers are fine, too, so just bring your own brews. It is free event. I always forgot to mention that. Uh, Kids and animals on leashes are cool. But yeah, ton, I mean, there's there's so much variety. If you haven't seen a lot of jazz music around here, Josh Couts and friends will be playing at 6 p.m. at Porch 1104, some of the best jazz players in town. And uh, you just don't see that a lot anymore, so yeah. I, I want to plug that one for sure. And if you just like rock or like uh, newer rock bands, Drop Diver and Camacho are playing at 6 and 7 p.m. at 1505. Uh, there's some amazing talent there. Uh, some younger guys that play very like classic style rock, and Camacho's got an amazing singer, keyboard player. Of course, Wanda Wesolowski. Um, if you're into uh, local music, you've probably heard of Wanda. She's mm-hmm. got a Wanda van. She has her Wanda bread merch. She's got uh, all, all the Wanda puns you can handle and an amazing band. Um, the Beastie Goys are playing, and uh, Free Candy is one of my favorite jam band from around here. They played at 420 Fest. It gives you an idea okay. of the kind of Very all the cool. stuff they're slinging out there. <laughs> <laughs> and the Go-Go Killers. If you're at Rockabilly scene, is huge around here. Um, punk rock and Rockabilly has a huge uh, uh, history over mm-hmm. here. Uh, and they're they're a big part of that. They have, uh, I've seen them wearing lizard skin boots. 
They've got the full uh, suits on. They're 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 professional uh, wreck and rollers, as they they call it. But right. I, I don't know. There's 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 way more. Way and more. what about the food trucks? Do you know who's going to be there? I think Fire and Spice is going to be there. I don't know off the okay. top of my head. Um, but they've had they had at least two or three options last year, and I assume it's grown since then. So I don't know who's who'll be at, who'll be out there specifically, um, but the the bands are staggered. So just walk down the street, and find something you like, and hang out with us. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, ben Czar, uh, Ben Job Czar of Porch Fest. <laughs> appreciate appreciate that plug. Thank you. Thank you for uh, giving me the upgrade too. Like uh, I love to have that authority. There you go. And thanks yeah. for having me on the show to plug it too. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to be there for sure. We'll see so. you there five to nine. All right, man. Uh. Adam, are you going to be able to make it to Porch Fest? He said, are you going to be able to make it? Yes, I do believe so. Uh, also, I just want to point out that, you know, typically on this show, we are anti-monarchy. Uh, I'll make an <laughs> exception for the Czar of Porch Fest, Ben Job. I will make some exception there. Maybe we should. Uh, no guillotines it. necessary in that, that okay. instance. Okay. There you go. Like coronation there you go. day, y'all. Coronation day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard the announcement of the coronation uh, as we were going into the show, and it just reminded me of how. That's weird, just, isn't it? it just, it's so isn't it weird, weird? <laughs> and it, it is so bizarre that we have. Uh, that there are people that actually defend the monarchy, and there are American conservatives that are out there defending the monarchy. I mean, I heard Ben Shapiro and like Candace Owens go on about like, oh, you know, it's an important institution or whatever. And these are supposed to be the 1776 people, right? I mean, you know, that really kind of that really kind of gives away the game. Like, if we were if we were 200 years ago, the people who are conservative today, they would be redcoats, right? That would be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it's a bizarre phenomenon, and uh, happy to be, proud to be an American. Proud to be an American. Screw the king. Down with the king, down with tyranny. Six Semper Tyrannus. That's. There you go. Yeah, there we go. Um, on the theme of opposing hierarchy, uh, uh, last week was May Day. Monday was May Day. Um, That's right. And that is a very important day in uh, the history of, uh, you know, working class history, Adam. So tell me about tell me about May Day. So May 1st was May Day or International Workers Day. This is a day to recognize the social and economic achievements of the international labor movement. The day is officially recognized as a Labor Day holiday in much of the world but not the United States. Much of the world saw labor rallies, marches, and protests on May Day, which unfortunately also meant state repression. See France, Turkey, South Korea for examples. Of course, May Day also commemorates the 1886 Haymarket Massacre in Chicago, in which Chicago police fired on workers during a protest, killing several demonstrators. According to historian William J. Adelman, Quote, no single event has influenced the history of labor in Illinois, the United States, and even the world more than the Chicago Haymarket Affair. It began with a rally on May 4, 1886, but the consequences are still being felt today. Although the rally is included in American history textbooks, very few present the event accurately or point out its significance. So I'm going to quote here from a piece by Adelman 
for the Illinois Labor History Society uh, because I believe it's important that we remember our history, we, we remember our heritage as working class people. The entire event was most mysterious. To understand what happened at Haymarket, it is necessary to go back to the summer of 1884 when the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, the predecessor of the American Federation of Labor, called for May 1, 1886 to be the beginning of a nationwide movement for the eight-hour day. This wasn't a particularly radical idea since both Illinois workers and federal employees were supposed to have been covered by an eight-hour day law since 1867. The problem was that the federal government failed to enforce its own law. And in Illinois, employers forced workers to sign waivers of the law as condition of employment. With two years to plan, the organized labor movement in Chicago and throughout Illinois sent out questionnaires to employers to see how they felt about shorter hours and other issues, including child labor. Songs were written like the eight-hour day. Everywhere slogans were heard like eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will or shortening, shortening the hours, increase the pay. Two of the organizers of these demonstrations were Lucy and Albert Parsons. Lucy had been born a slave in Texas around 1853. Her heritage was African American, Native American, and Mexican. She worked for the Freedmen's Bureau after the Civil War. After her marriage to Albert, they moved to Chicago, where she turned her attention to writing and organizing women's sewing workers. Albert was a printer, a member of the Knights of Labor, editor of the labor paper the, the Alarm, and one of the founders of the Chicago Trades and Labor Assembly. On Sunday, May 2nd, Albert went to Ohio to organize rallies there, while Lucy and others staged another peaceful march of 35,000 workers. But on Monday, May 3rd, the peaceful scene turned violent when the Chicago police attacked and killed picketing workers at the McCormick Reaper plant at Western and Blue Island Avenues. The, this attack by police provoked a protest meeting which was planned for Haymarket Square on the evening of Tuesday, May 4th. Very few textbooks provide a thorough explanation of the events that led to Haymarket nor do they mention that the pro-labor mayor of Chicago, Carter Harrison, gave permission for the meeting. Most speakers failed to appear. Instead of starting at 7.30, the meeting was delayed for about an hour. Instead of the expected 20,000 people, fewer than 2,500 attended. Two substitute speakers ran over to Haymarket Square at the last minute. They had been attending a meeting of sewing workers organized by Lucy Parsons and her fellow labor organizer, Lizzie Holmes of Geneva, Illinois. These last-minute speakers were Albert Parsons, just returned from Ohio, and Samuel Fielden, an English-born Methodist lay preacher who worked in the labor movement. The Haymarket meeting was almost over, and only about 200 people remained when they were attacked by 176 policemen carrying Winchester repeater rifles. Fielden was speaking. Even Lucy and Albert Parsons had left because it was beginning to rain. Then someone, unknown to this day, threw the first dynamite bomb ever used in peacetime history of the United States. The police panicked, and in the darkness many shot at their own men. 
Eventually, seven policemen died, only one directly accountable to the bomb. Four workers were also killed, but few textbooks bother to mention this fact. The next day, martial law was declared, not just in Chicago, but throughout the nation. Anti-labor governments around the world used the Chicago incident to crush local union movements. In Chicago, labor, labor leaders were rounded up, houses were entered without search warrants, and union newspapers were closed down. Eventually, eight men, representing a cross-section of the labor movement, were selected to be tried. Among them were Fielden, Parsons, and a young carpenter named Louis Ling, who was accused of throwing the bomb. Ling had witnesses to, to prove he was over a mile away at the time. The two-month-long trial ranks as one of the most notorious in American history. The Chicago Tribune even offered to pay money to the jury if it found the eight men guilty. On August 20th, 1886, the jury reported its verdict of guilty with the death penalty by hanging for seven of the Haymarket Eight and 15 years of hard labor for Neeb. On November 10th, the, the day before the execution, Samuel Gompers came from Washington to appeal to Governor Oglesby for the last time. The national and worldwide pressure did finally force the, gov the governor to change the sentences of Samuel Fielden and Michael Schwab to imprisonment for life. Although five of the eight were still to be hanged the next day, on the morning of November 10th, Louis Ling was found in his cell, his head half blown away by a dynamite cap. The entire event was most mysterious, since Ling was hoping to receive a pardon that very day. Adolf Fisher, George Engel, Albert Parsons, and August Spies were hanged on November 11th, 1887. In June of 1893, Governor John P. Outgold pardoned the three men still alive and condemned the entire judicial system that had allowed this injustice. The real issues of the Haymarket Affair were freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right to free assembly, the right to a fair trial by a jury of peers, and the right of workers to organize and fight for things like the eight-hour day. While textbooks tell about the bomb, they fail to mention the reason for the meeting or what happened afterwards. Some books even fail to mention the fact that many of those who were tried were not even at the Haymarket meeting, but were arrested simply because they were union organizers. Sadly, these rights have been abridged many times in American history. During the civil rights marches of the 1960s, the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, and the 1968 Democratic National Convention, we saw similar violations to our constitutional rights. The Haymarket Affair took on worldwide dimension in July 1889, when a delegate from the American Federation of Labor recommended at a labor conference in Paris that May 1st be set aside as International Labor Day in memory of Haymarket martyrs and the injustice of the Haymarket Affair. Today, in almost every major industrial nation, May Day is Labor Day. Even Great Britain and Israel have passed legislation in recent years declaring this date a national holiday. 
For years, half of the American labor movement observed May 1st as Labor Day, while the other half observed the first Monday in September. After the Russian Revolution, the May 1st date was mistakenly associated with communism, and in a protest against Soviet policy, May 1st was proclaimed Law Day in the 1960s. The year 1986 marked the centennial of the eight-hour day movement and the Haymarket Affair. Folk singer Pete Seeger and a group called The People Yes, named after Sandberg's volume of poems by that name, planned a nationwide celebration. This event offered teachers a unique opportunity to teach the facts about Haymarket and to correct the distortions and inaccuracies in our textbooks. Again, that was from William J. Adelman of the Illinois Labor History Society. It has now been 137 years. What is up to all of us in the labor movement to remember these martyrs and the many, many more who fought and died to build a better world for the working class. Absolutely. Yep, it's important to remember that. Um, we have on the line uh, Travis McCoy. He is a steward for the National Association of Letter Carriers, Branch 462, here in Madison. Um, and he has called in to talk to us about the uh, Letter Carrier's annual food drive that they do. Uh, and to, to remind everybody that it's going to be uh, next week, Saturday, May the 13th. Uh, so, Travis, thanks for calling in. I, I appreciate it. Have we, have we got him on? Let's try that again, Travis. Hello, hello. Can you hear yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. I can hear you now. <laughs> hi, hi there. Yeah, uh, it's a pleasure to be on. A long-time listener, first-time caller. Appreciate it. And uh, we've had we've had many conversations with Travis off the air. Uh, he's a, a good brother. puts in a lot a lot of work for uh, for his coworkers, sisters, and brothers over there uh, with the letter carriers in Madison uh, and Huntsville and Scottsboro and all over the place. So, um, but but today you're talking to us about the uh, the food drive that y'all have um, every year, and and it's going to be uh, Saturday, May the thirteenth. So talk to us about that. And the first thing, I, uh, the first question, I guess, is is how do people participate in the food drive? Uh, we'll be delivering in the not too distant future uh, <clears throat> cards to north, uh, across North Alabama. Uh, uh, residents can simply uh, fill a bag and place it near their mail receptacle, whether it's at the curb or their front porch, and their carrier will collect it on May 13th. The drive is always the second Saturday in May. Awesome, awesome. So just just put a just put a a, a bag of non-perishable food items, uh, in, um, by your mailbox, and your letter carrier will pick it up. Now, what about folks in apartment complexes? I have a you know I, I live in an apartment complex, and I've got a big you know like this big mail room. Where do I put stuff to mm -hmm. uh, if I wanted to donate? Near uh, near the mail receptacle again, or possibly in the office for the apartment complex. But uh, we we would advise near the delivery point 
for your carrier just to make it easier for them because on that same day we will also be delivering the mail the mail doesn't stop <laughs> your carrier is going to be pulling double duty that day so we just ask our customers make it a li- make it just that little bit easier for them to get it all done perfect perfect and this is something that the union is doing it's not uh it, it's not a drive by the uh by the postal service it is something that that that's done through the union and so every second saturday in may annually y'all do this food drive um you know where you ask uh, uh people who receive sir uh who receive mail service to you know make a donation of, of non-perishable food items where does that where do those donations go uh, our branch is working in coordination with the Food Bank of North Alabama. Uh, all, all donations will go, will go to that local organization. Perfect. The Food Bank of North Alabama. And uh, y'all do this every year. Do you have any, any numbers off, off the top of your head of, uh, you know, I know that I've seen, I've seen over the past few years, you know, uh, stats about like we donated X amount of pounds of food this year. Do you, do you uh, mm-hmm. know any of those numbers? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, sir. We, the, the Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive started as a pilot program back in 1991. It was staged in uh, 10 select cities, uh, and it was so popular. It proved so successful that it then became a, an annual event. Uh, first being, uh, after being revamped and launched at the national level back in 1993. So we're in our 31st year of conducting our our national food drive. And as of 2019, we have collected uh, just under 2 billion pounds nationwide. We uh, don't have don't have good numbers past 2019 unfortunately just as with so many other uh charitable efforts uh across the globe uh covid uh, was a significant disruption we were forced Mm -hmm. to cancel in 2020 and 2021 Uh, we uh, resumed in 2022 and we are looking to build uh on on that momentum again there are Many food insecure families in Alabama and particularly in North Alabama, and they need our help. Approximately one in five children in North Alabama are uh, are food insecure. That doesn't mean starving necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just means they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Right. Right. Yeah, that's uh, uh, definitely important to be able to support our neighbors. And uh, and I really appreciate your union uh, leading on that effort and and uh, allowing us to support you all in that way. Uh, Is there anything else that folks ought to know about this food drive? Off the top of my head, uh, we we just like to let the public know that we very much appreciate their generosity. Uh, there's a particular need for protein donations, uh, uh, peanut butter, uh, uh, soybeans, uh, uh, non-perishable food products of, of that nature. Uh, I would emphasize uh, protein donations and uh, uh, thank, uh, thank the public for uh, their contributions. 
Awesome. Uh, Travis McCoy, Stewart, uh, a steward of, of the uh, National Association of Letter Carriers, Branch 462. Really appreciate your time, and I look forward to contributing next weekend and, and hope we'll have a lot of listeners do the same. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yep. Talk to you later. Uh, $2 Super Chat from Strom McCallum. Solidarity from North Carolina. Appreciate it, Strom. Thank you very much. Um, and we had uh, uh, got several people in the chat this morning. Really appreciate it. If you want to be uh, part of the conversation during the show, you can go to the YouTube, uh, to the YouTubes and uh, participate in the chat. Um, uh, I had some... Uh, some compliments on Adam's May Day segment. Uh, and Vex the Cat says thank you to Travis. Uh, Strom says he's about to go catch some catfish. That looks like, that sounds like a lot of fun. Hope you hope, hope you have a good, uh, hope you're able to catch a bunch. Hope you're able to catch a bunch. Uh, appreciate Travis dropping in and talking to us about that. We are going to take a break really quick, and we'll be right back. We're going to talk to Lee Hedgepath. He is an Alabama journalist um, who has uh, who's started a new kind of independent uh, journalism outfit, uh, Tread by Lee, and uh, we're really excited about it. Uh, excited about his story and some of the work, some of the work that he did before he went independent, and some of the stuff that he's done since. Uh, he he's always done really good work, as far as I can tell. So really excited to talk to him about his story and some of the reporting that he's done here in Alabama. Uh, so you're going to want to hear that conversation. Make sure that you stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. IBW five five eight is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. 
Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAC. The sign hit the city like a bolt of lightning. You know the photo. It's iconic. Marches in the streets holding a simple sign with a simple message. I am a man. The I Am Story podcast explores the fight that inspired those words. How a group of sanitation workers in Memphis stood up and made history. They don't see us as men and women. Go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senior Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senior Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senior Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senior Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Seniored Law, the name with proven results. I'm all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth, all wealth should go to labor, and you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We've got a phone number. If you've got anything to add, you can give us a call or send us a text message. The phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We're going to get right into our interview with Lee Hedgepath. Lee Hedgepath is a longtime Alabama journalist, and he came from CBS 42 before parting ways with them uh, and beginning an independent journalism outfit, Tread by Lee. You can follow him on Twitter at, uh, I think it's at Lee Hedgepath, and then his, um, uh, you can follow at Tread by Lee on Twitter as well. Uh, so, Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on the Valley Labor Report. Of course. Glad to be here. So the first thing, I guess, is, uh, you know, you were a uh, you were a journalist at CBS 42. How long did you work? How long were you working there? It was a while, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so I was at CBS 42 for about two years. Uh, before that, my training was in basically in newspapers across the state. So I worked down in Mobile at a newspaper called Lanyap, an alternative weekly down there. And then I worked oh, yeah. over at the Anson Star, which is a um, newspaper in East Alabama. So, Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and so, uh, 
you had a, um, you know, the, the split was not amicable, and I'm not clear about whether it was a resignation or you were actually fired, but but can talk to us about um, uh, it, what happened there. Sure. So, you know, kind of my role at CBS 42, I was a digital investigative reporter. So um, the typical kinds of stories that TV stations in Alabama produce are stories that are focused on um, you know, what can I get in a package, a minute and 30 package? What is very visual? What types of interviews can I turn around in a day? And that's not the type of journalism that I had done at newspapers, right? I had done more long form investigative journalism. And so that's what I was doing at CBS 42. Um, so it was already a kind of journalism that wasn't really particularly fit with the medium that I was using, right? Um, a TV station isn't exactly the venue for publishing that type of long form journalism. Um, but I was trying to do those types of stories. Um, so one story that we had been working on there at CBS was um, the story of Anthony Mitchell. So this is an individual who was having some drug issues, having um, some mental instability issues. Um, his family ended up calling local police in Walker County for a welfare check. And when the police came, um, they alleged that the that Anthony shot at them. They ended up arresting him for attempted murder after, you know, going on a welfare check. Um, his family said, you know, that kind of shows the danger of of calling police in situations like this in places like Alabama and really anywhere. Um, but after he's in um, police custody for about two weeks, he ends up dying in police custody. So his family later files a lawsuit saying that he froze to death. And so I was able to break the story of his death in police custody. Um you know, it was a story that was really important to me. Um, we had another reporter there at CBS that is from Walker County, so it was important to her as well. Um, a couple of weeks after um, this happened, um, well, really quickly before we get before we get into that, the um, the the his death in police custody was, I mean, really kind of uniquely uh, astonished. I mean, just just unique in its you know, grossness, right? Sure. Yeah. So one of the things that's alleged in the federal lawsuit that his family's filed is that he froze to death, right? So the doctor's Ooh. notes from the ER um, say that he, his body temperature was something like 72 degrees when he arrived at the hospital. Um, so, you know, this is severe hypothermia. Um, his family says he was kept in a frigid environment over a long period of time, something that Walker County officials have denied. But obviously, you know, you can't deny that he died and he died of hypothermia. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, particularly gross situation and one that's really important. You know, I felt was really important to make sure people um, understood not just the police side of this and kind of the mainstream media's take on it, which was always, you know, if you shoot at police, you're going to get shot. Right. And that type of narrative is one that I think is very easy for journalists who may not want to make that second phone call to somebody besides the police. Right. And I think it's something that we have to work on as journalists in Alabama is like figuring out, you know, we can't just allow police uh, statements to just be the entire story, which is a lot of the case in, in some of these more mainstream reports. Yeah, I mean, what the uh, I I saw something the other day that just and, and it's something that I think a lot of people have known, but uh, about the the fentanyl overdoses, you know, quote unquote, by police officers. They are all across the country saying that oh, I just touched fentanyl and and I uh, I overdosed and and there's absolutely no 
data or anything to suggest that that's even possible. And in fact, the symptoms that that cops say that they have when they get quote unquote overdosed by fentanyl is more consistent with a panic attack <laughs> than with sure, um, sure. than than with a fentanyl overdose. And and that's something that you know you just see all, all the time. Like reporters just say that, oh yeah, well the police said this, and so that's yeah that's the case. Right. Um, and and so it, it's it's really good to see folks uh, like you, you know, at least questioning it. Like, is not even necessarily just assuming that the cops are lying to you, but but yeah, trust sure. but verify, yeah. right? That's the that was the Ronald That's Reagan the thing. Yeah, trust but verify. And so you're you you did some work trying to verify uh, uh, some of the facts around this story, and, um, and and you can pick up from there. Yeah, so, you know, the issue with CBS came along when the Attorney General was in town. So Attorney General Steve Marshall has been a very vocal opponent of any measures that would, you know, lessen the incarceral reality of the state of Alabama. Mm -hmm. um, and so he had been going around kind of talking to news outlets about how bad the um, quote unquote inmate release was. So a few mm -hmm. inmates were released. Um, a couple of months ago, um, based on a law that was passed a couple of years ago by the Alabama legislature, right? They should have known that this was happening. And the Alabama Department of Corrections had failed to notify some of the victims. And so that became an issue um, in in the release. But basically, the attorney general was going around on this kind of media frenzy, um, you know, talking about how horrible it was that we were releasing prisoners, prisoners that in large part had spent, you know, much of their entire sentence already um, incarcerated and uh, served those sentences. But the attorney general said to, to CBS's management, I will answer your questions about Walker County, which in reality that meant I will say it's being investigated and I can't say anything. Mm -hmm. um, if and only if you interview me and ask about how bad this inmate release was, mm. right? Those types of conditions are not types of conditions that journalists should be accepting. Right. If you want to, you should answer, and it is your job to answer questions about an Alabamian that died in police custody. Right. You're the top law enforcement in the state of Alabama, and it's your job to answer those questions. So CBS did not tell me about this um, proposal. Um, our Montgomery reporter said that she wouldn't do the interview um, because of the condition um, that the attorney general had set, but they chose to do it anyway. Um, hmm. They had a, a, a host at CBS do the interview. Um, with the attorney general, the attorney general didn't really say anything of substance at first about the Walker County case. Um, we showed him a video that I had obtained um, there at CBS 42 related to um, Mr. Mitchell being taken out by Walker County um, Sheriff's Office and placed into a uh, police vehicle. And the police vehicle was then taken to the um, medical emergency. The police had originally told us that he that Mr. Mitchell was um, alert and conscious when he left mm. the jail. And in the video, he's clearly not alert and conscious, right? His feet are dangling as these officers carry him and kind of stuff him into a police vehicle. And so I was insistent that we show the attorney general this video on camera. Well, on and camera, just really what? Uh, and and this is this is kind of the crux of the thing that you're about to get to. But but just an, another note for people, and and maybe this is a different story, and I'm mistaking it. But but isn't it correct that that this video? was not released through official channels and, and by a, a FOIA or anything. This was released by a, an employee 
of the jail who felt like this is something that the family deserved to see, and then that employee was disciplined? Is that is that correct? That's right. So this was a jail employee, actually a jail employee who had made employee of the month a couple of months earlier. So you can still go to Walker wow. County's page and see like her employee of the month photo. Um, but yeah, she saw the video of surveillance video from inside the jail um, of the way that Mr. Mitchell was being treated and kind of took that uh, recorded on her phone, some of that surveillance video, which eventually we obtained at CBS 42 um, and aired that video. Um, but yeah, we showed that video to the attorney general um, in the initial interview uh, with Ani Lindenberg there on CBS. Um, he actually didn't see the video. So um, after the interview had concluded, he said, you know, I actually didn't see that. So he still might still on camera. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't see that video. Can you roll it again for me? And so they roll the video again. And uh, the attorney general of Alabama, top law enforcement in the state, says um, it appears to me he might be posturing. So this is a man who clearly is unconscious, is being placed into a vehicle to be brought to the hospital, and the attorney general is speculating that he is posturing, right? So when I saw that video, I felt it needed to be released, right? The, he hadn't said anything about what happened to Anthony Mitchell of substance. He said it would be investigated, that type of thing. He said, you can't trust a, sing a video that shows a single moment in time. But then once the interview had concluded, he said, made this comment about him posturing. And I felt like that was something that the folks of Alabama should see. Mm -hmm. uh, so I tweeted uh, that section of the interview with him, um, you know, making those comments about Mr. Mitchell and news management, um, you know, did not agree with that decision. And so they chose to reprimand me, um, a written reprimand, and I chose to just go ahead and part ways and uh, move into my work at TRID, um, which is what I'm working on now. Yeah, and uh, so and I think I think that was the right decision, and and, and I think that it's it's really a shame that uh, you know the the people who are you know they they would say leaders uh, in you know uh, in the journalism industry in Alabama. You know, I think um, representatives of Capital might be a, a more you know more accurate uh, 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 summary of, of their position, but. Um, you know, it, it is really a shame that they did not feel like Alabamians deserve to, to see uh, the attorney general's initial reaction to this, um, which was, again, you know, he knew the facts of the case in that he knew that this guy was found later dead of hypothermia. Sure. Uh, and, and the idea that, that you could see a couple hours before he's not alert and your first thought is that he's posturing is just wild. Um, and, and yeah, folks, folks deserve to know that. Right. Because I think it's very revealing of a, a particular mindset yeah. of Steve Marshall, our attorney general. Uh, and yeah, I, I agree with Jacob. I applaud you for trying to do the right thing. Um, as someone who has been retaliated against on the job for telling the truth, uh, you know, you have my sympathies and I certainly know what it feels like and, uh, more power to you. I really I, I appreciate you taking your, your work seriously uh, because there's a responsibility that journalists have to tell the truth to the public. Um, but unfortunately, you know, business and politics gets in the way of that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Lee, talk to us about your new, your new project, uh, tread by Lee. Is that a Substack or is that like a website that, that you have or? Yeah. So, so a website that's kind of based on Substack and we have gotcha. uh, kind of branched out into, you know, doing as much coverage as we can. You know, I'm only one person, but I'm trying to, you know, tell the stories that I was already telling at CBS. Mm -hmm. um, 
but kind of tell them in a more in-depth, long-form way, um, you know, using original photography, original reporting to kind of uh, bolster that reporting. Um, but I'm doing kind of the same stories that I was doing before at CBS. So stories that are featuring folks that typically aren't heard from in the Alabama media, right? So uh, one of the things, for example, that I've been trying um, to do more work on a couple of topics, one of them being the death penalty. Um, death penalty is really important to me. Alabama is one of the uh, few states that are conducting most of the executions in in, in the country. Right. Um, we've seen, you know, most states aren't executing folks anymore, right? Most countries don't execute folks anymore. Um, and so that's an issue that's important to me. Um, police shootings have been something that have... Uh, that I've been covering recently for Tread that have been important to me. And that was a, also a theme while I was at CBS. So, um, you know, talking to families who've been impacted by police violence. Um, so another Walker County story just wrote a couple of days ago related to the Gardendale Police Department, which is a police department um, right outside of Birmingham, um, went outside their jurisdiction by like 30 miles to serve a narcotics warrant in Cordova, Alabama, over in Walker County. Um, so they uh, go around 6 a.m. to serve this search warrant for narcotics. They uh, bust the door down, um, and a, a man and his family are inside. They um, say they told me in interviews afterward the police didn't announce themselves. So when they mm. come in, um, the individual in the house has armed himself with a legal weapon. He shoots at police, they shoot back, and they kill this man in front of his nine-year-old child, his wife, oh and his God. mother, mm. right? So this is a story where every other news outlet in the state had run headlines like, man who shot at police killed, something like that, right? Right. This was a man who was killed in front of his nine-year-old child, right? and the headlines in every news outlet, you know, folks can Google this at home, just Cordova shooting by police. All of these headlines are basically indicting this man of a crime that he can never be tried for, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things I think is important to me as a journalist and that I think other journalists should really try to, to do is to make sure if police's statement is the only statement you have for a story, you don't have a story. You need to pick up the phone. You need to go knock on a door. You need to talk to someone who was there, right? Mm. So you know, when these types of stories get published in Alabama, you get a lot of public uh, pushback from some people in the public who say, you know, well, he shot at police. Why are you, uh, you know, some folks have called me, well, why are you a biased reporter in this? Bias is telling the police's side without telling the other side, right? right. So I think that when folks, I'll just encourage folks who are listening when you read a news story, think about who is being interviewed in the story, who's being heard in the story, and why. If you're not hearing from somebody you think you should, there may be a reason for that, right? Mm. Tweet that author and ask them, why aren't you interviewing the family of the person who's been shot, right? Why aren't you interviewing anyone but police? Why is this story completely based on police statements? So I think, you know, people... Journalists have the primary responsibility here, right? We're the ones writing the stories. Um, but I think, you know, individual consumers of news also have a lot of power in terms of, you know, where you click is where your money's going, right? Your mm -hmm. attention is really valuable to people. You get what you pay for. If you're not paying for journalism, that means somebody else is paying for it. What's their agenda? So I 
think, you know, those are a lot of questions that news consumers <clears throat> in the state needs, need to ask themselves to make sure that you're not contributing to some of these issues um, when it comes to media coverage of very important issues like police violence, like the death penalty, um, things like that. Is there any indication at all that these uh, officers in Cordova are going to face disciplinary action or uh, termination? Not right now. So um, in this case, as in almost all cases of um, what police call officer-involved shootings, which is trans, you know, and you'll see that in headlines and mm -hmm. which is just translated to we shot someone and we don't want to admit it. Right. Um, so in all of those cases, uh, basically what happens is the Alabama law enforcement agency takes over the investigation and that becomes a black box, right? Mm. So I um, covered uh, extensively a case here in Birmingham where the Birmingham Police Department shot and killed um, a young man named Keelan Cannell here in Birmingham. Um, and that case, you know, took forever for the Alabama law enforcement agency to come to their conclusion that it was a justified shooting. I've never seen a case, never, where Alabama law enforcement agency did not rule the shooting justified. There may be <laughs> one out there somewhere. I'm not aware of it. So these cases take years to investigate, months and months, if not years, to investigate. And then when a Aaliyah comes out with their, their conclusion, it's almost always that the shooting was justified. So, you know, like in the Birmingham case with Keelan Cannell, his mom still wants answers mm. you know this happened years ago and i went to his funeral here in birmingham and watched the grief that was caused by these police this police violence that police have never owned up to have never apologized for have never given answers about so you know these are the type of stories that are important to me um to make sure you know not just in the short term like this family in cordova their story has been told if only by you know my little news outlet, but it's also important to think like down the line, like you said, what are the consequences for these officers? What is Aaliyah's conclusion going to be? And so, like following that story is what's important to me, and something that news outlets you know tip, aren't very good at, right? You don't necessarily always see the follow up that you think you should. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is is that cops just never get there's there's never any accountability for their actions and even in um you know there was there was one that i'm thinking of in in texas where there was a it, it was also a mistaken entry and this person and, and this officer killed somebody and ted cruz goes out there you know saying that that uh, this officer shouldn't lose her job. She should be able to uh, to maintain her job. And 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 in my you know in my estimation, even if we grant that there was no malice there, or you know, your mistake kill you, you know your mistake killed somebody. You should never have a license to kill again because you can't handle it. Um, you know, you've proven that you can't handle it and your mistake, you, somebody is dead because of your mistake, even if there was no malice there. And so just do something else because, you know, do some other type of work, right? It's not your right to be a cop. Uh, so, you know, it, it seems, it seems to me that, uh, the, the least that ought to happen is if your mistake results in the death of somebody, you can never be a cop again. But of course, you know, uh, somehow, uh, somehow it seems like, um, you know, the people with power don't agree with that. So, yeah, well, there seems to be, you know, in Alabama, at least, I, 
think of this one case out of Talladega from a couple of years ago where we get a, a police uh, a press release from um, the Alabama law enforcement agency, uh, kind of a typical thing where it's like there was a single vehicle crash in Talladega. Um, a white charger hit an individual, hit like ran, struck an individual, ran them over, um, and the individual died. So very typical press release. It was a really slow night, so I decided just mm -hmm. to call Aaliyah to get some more information, maybe get the family of the person who died to interview the family, see a little bit more about who they were. Um, I, I very quickly find out that the white Dodge Charger that had struck this person was a Talladega police cruiser. Wow. Aaliyah did not mention this in their press wow. release. A press release that was, you know, AL.com ran it, WBRC ran it, all the large media outlets in the state had run this story about, you know, Brandon McFry, age whatever, dies um, after being struck by a car. The car was a police officer. It was in a wow. police chase. I interviewed the entire family about, you know, one of the individuals in the car, his fiance literally tells me i seen him get hit that was her words why are we not hearing these stories right, right. so you know obviously Aliyah's is at fault for not telling the public what happened in that case the talladega police department's at fault for not telling people what happened in the case but the media their job is to find out what actually happened right hmm. so i'm glad i picked up the phone and made that call but what if i hadn't Right. right. This family wouldn't they they're not going out to media outlets to try to get their story told necessarily. Right. Like right. it's our job to tell those stories. And I think that, you know, we're in a situation in Alabama where we don't have enough good journalists to tell the stories that need to be told. And we're in a situation of triage where we've mm -hmm. got, you know, we live in a semi authoritarian state. The government, you know, its policies are leading to harm for a lot of citizens. And it's our job as journalists to go out and to document that harm and tell folks, look, here's what ha what is happening and here's why. Yeah, absolutely. And here's a question that I'm pretty sure I know the answer to. Uh, was that officer ever disciplined or terminated? In Talladega. Where oh. Did we lose Lee? Uh-oh. No, he's back. back. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, yeah not that I'm aware of. Not that you're aware of. Yeah, that's that's what I figured. Um, wild stuff. Wild yeah. stuff. Lee, I just want to say I really appreciate your comments, and I think it really resonates, and you know that's part of why we're doing what we're doing to you know amplify the voice of Southern labor, uh, in particular the Alabama labor movement, uh, because when it comes to working class people, the media is just not there for us. The media really doesn't work for us. Uh, it's not built for us. Uh, we're not represented in the media. Uh, and the media is not really interested in telling our stories in an authentic way. And so you see that time after time after time when there are struggles between workers and employers and it's the employer side that gets mm -hmm. told. Right. It's the press releases from Warrior Met that gets read. You know, it's yep, right. it's not the struggles of the striking minor that's told. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think what you're doing is really, really important. Uh, and, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I think we, we do need much more quality journalism in the state. And there are some people doing good work. I don't want to sure. suggest otherwise. 
but it's not enough. It's not enough, particularly given the conditions we live in. Uh, you know, we as a state rank at or near the bottom of every aspect of quality of life, every aspect of our life and our society and our civilization. Um, and so, you know, there's just a need to tell the truth and a need to uh, educate and agitate folks and inform folks. And so, yeah, I really appreciate your commentary. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, Lee Hedgepeth, you can follow him on Twitter uh, at Lee underscore Hedgepeth. Uh, you can follow his newsletter, Tread by Lee, on Twitter at Tread by Lee or uh, treadbylee.com. Uh, L E E treadbylee.com uh really appreciate it man look yeah. forward to talking to you again keep up the good work thank y'all so much for having me absolutely all right folks we're going to take a break and we're going to be right back uh talking about some other alabama headlines you're listening to the valley labor report stay tuned there's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers, and we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. .org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. 
The Laborers International Union of North America Local 366 is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256-415-7452. Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better, work union, local 366, feel the power. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senyard. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. Do you work in an auto manufacturing plant? Are you tired of taking pride in your work without getting the respect you deserve? Consider joining the fight to unionize. Auto workers across the industry are coming together because with a union, we can negotiate for the pay, benefits, and security that we deserve and can help sustain our families. In union plants, workers bargain for long-term wage increases, competitive bonuses, and more affordable benefits. You can join the growing wave of organizing today. Find out more and contact us at Uniting Auto Workers on Facebook or contact UAW Region 8 in Lebanon, Tennessee by going to www.uawregion8.net. That's www.uawregion, the number 8, N-E-T. A better future is ours. radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller and we have a phone number and the line is open, folks. It's 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We appreciate the conversation happening in the chat. Vex the Cat asks, are there any unions or labor organizations in North and South Carolina and uh, North and South Carolina do have the, uh, I think it's the lowest and then the second lowest union density rates in, in the country. Uh, but there are unions in there. And uh, even that low density means that there are thousands of workers in each state that are uh, members of unions, including uh, at um, oh, Smithfield, Smithfield Farms, I think is the name of the thing. Uh, and you can watch the documentary about how Smithfield workers won their union on Means TV, Friends of the Show. Uh, the documentary is called Union Time. Union Time is a documentary about um, workers in either North or South Carolina 
winning their union at Smithfield. Um, very cool documentary, and uh, and it's stuff that's happening in, um, I guess, presumably your neck of the woods, uh, Vex the Cat, since you were asking about North and South Carolina. Uh, I also wanted to mention, yes, uh, you're right, South Carolina has the lowest union density. North Carolina uh, isn't too far behind, though it seemed to be growing based on last year's numbers. Uh, but there's some, there's some uh, good educator organizing happening in North Carolina. Mm. Uh, so want to shout that out. There is a reform caucus that's been organizing in uh, in North Carolina. So, you know, despite the, the daunting numbers, there are folks doing good work and who are organizing. And so, yeah, ho- hopefully y'all can be connected. Perfect. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, we do air live on WBNN, the right wing talk radio station here in Huntsville, Athens listening area every Saturday from 9.30 to 11, with our overtime airing uh, at 11 o'clock, online only, on YouTube and Facebook. We got our start on WVNN, which is the birthplace of Sean Hannity and home to all sorts of reactionary propaganda that we find objectionable. But we think it's important to get a different perspective out there to multiple audiences. We're happy that a portion of the show is replayed during the week on WZZA, the historic black radio station in northwest Alabama, and on WHIV, a community radio station in New Orleans. We released the full episode on Spotify, Apple, and the various podcasting apps, so please subscribe to us on your app of choice and give us a good review. And throughout the week, clips of the show are released as standalone videos on YouTube and in some cases TikTok. So if there's a specific segment or interview you want to find, we do try to make it easy for you. Just do us a favor and hit subscribe and like. And all of our content is free. So special thanks to all of you who donate, all of you who comment and call in, and all of you who have liked us, shared us, and reviewed us. Your engagement on social media and podcasting apps really does help, and that's a quick, easy, and free way to support the program. If you believe it's important to have our own media of, by, and for the Southern working class, please consider supporting us however you can, and please share with your coworkers, friends, family, and neighbors. We know there's a lot of good causes to support, and our audience are working folks with limited incomes. So if you find value in our project and you're willing to chip in a couple bucks, it would really mean a lot. We've got some great stuff planned as we grow the project, and we can't do it without you. That is absolutely the case, and uh, appreciate that reminder, Adam. So let's talk about uh, child labor in the South, and this is something that is, you know, uh, has been uh, sort of a, a running thread through the show uh, for the last several months. Um, that that child labor has just been uh, rampant, uh, not only through the South, but I mean through the country as well. You know, we saw that in Iowa, uh, they just passed a bill to allow. Uh, 14-year-olds to work in coal mines. I mean, really rancid kind of stuff. Uh, it, and it, it's just amazing that this kind of stuff is happening today. But um, uh, the Department of Labor put out some stuff uh, regarding the South in particular last week that we wanted to go over. Uh, and they said from 2020 to 2022, so just two years, two years, uh, the uh, Southern Division of the Department of Labor assessed Southeastern employers more than $2.8 million in penalties, um, with violations of child labor law up 69% since 2018, 
and millions of minor-aged workers joining the U.S. workforce each year. Now, that's not millions of minor-aged workers working illegally. Uh, you know, some of those are in seasonal summer jobs in restaurant, retail, and amusement industries, and that is and has always been legal. So, you know, when you hear people, you know, when you hear people trying to justify child labor and loosening child labor laws by saying oh, I had a summer job and it didn't hurt me. Uh, yeah, okay, that's true, and they can still do that. 16-year-olds <laughs> can still work at the ice cream shop with proper parental consent. Uh, these laws, the loosening of these restrictions, go beyond that. The loosening of these restrictions are allowing uh, children to work later on school nights, to allow children to work more than eight hours in a day over the summer, to allow, and in Arkansas, one of the laws was allowed uh, children to work without a parental consent form, which is really, frankly, all that is, is they may, they ought to have named that one, uh, that bill, the, uh, the Child Trafficking Support Act. The Support of Child Trafficking Act, because because that's all that does, right? If you allow children to work without a parental consent, without any form or anything, uh, that is just which is not to say that the form totally inhibits child trafficking. Of course, it doesn't, but it is. It makes it that much easier to fraudulently employ minor children uh, that have been trafficked for the purpose of of labor. Very, very uh, wicked and rancid stuff being pushed by uh, being pushed by business interests and politicians across the country. Um, but back to this report: millions of minor-aged workers joining are joining the U.S. workforce each year. Many in seasonal summer jobs in restaurant, retail, and amusement industries, which is legal and fine, and always has been. The U.S. Department of Labor is actively working to educate Southeastern employers about their legal obligations and make sure that young employees are, cap are kept safe at work and paid fully, uh, which is, you know, something that's that's really wild that they have to uh, uh, that they have to to, to put out there. Um, but you know, they talk about this this webinar that they're putting on for employers about, hey, you know, here's here's how you uh, don't abuse children at work. This is, you know, here's a crazy concept. Uh, maybe you shouldn't abuse children that work for you. Um, so if yeah, so if, I don't want to hear any excuses from business owners yes. that said that they weren't aware. Yeah, uh, sorry. There's free uh, webinars. Personal responsibility says yeah. and dictates that you should at least be taking the webinars from the Department of Labor. Yeah, the free webinars. How to pay your employees what you promised <laughs> them. How to not break laws. How to not break laws. How to not hurt children. Yeah. You know, very important concepts that are, you know, critical to the success of your business. Yeah, very. Uh, but also, you know, to be fair to the to the business owners, very complex, I'm sure, to not break the law. Uh, but, you know, so if you're a business owner out there and you are interested in taking advantage of uh, minor aged labor over the summer, uh, the Department of Labor has a webinar series that is free uh, that you can take to show you how to not break the law. So there's, you know, something to consider there. Look it up on your own time. Uh, from and, and so from fiscal year 2020 to 2022, the division assessed employers more than 2.8 million dollars in penalties and conducted more than 500 labor child labor investigations. This is again just across the south, affecting nearly 2,900 minors. These are minors that are working illegally. 
under illegal circumstances, whether they're working, uh, you know, past the time. There, there's like, I think it's seven or eight o'clock. Children can't work past seven or eight o'clock uh, if they have school the next day and they can't work eight, more than eight hours in one day over the summer. It just very, you know, it the the laws do vary from state to state, and you know, depending on age, right? There's different regulations right. for 14 and 15 that's year what olds this as opposed of, to 16 year olds and older. Yeah, right, right. That's what the Department of Labor webinar is for business owners. Right. Um, so you know, definitely take that. And but these are 2,900 children working illegally, just in the South. In Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee. Child labor violations were most commonly found in the restaurant, retail, construction, and amusement industries. But recent violations in the southeast, auto manufacturing, and meat processing industries are alarming. Uh, Quoting from uh, Wage and Hour Division Regional Administrator Juan Coria in Atlanta, Federal child labor laws permit minors between 14 and 17 years of age to enter the workforce so long as the job complies with federal, state, and local child labor laws. In many of our investigations, the Wage and Hour Division found Southeast employers illegally allowing minors to work longer or more frequent hours. We also discovered minors under 18 were assigned to perform hazardous occupations by employers who failed to understand their legal obligation to protect young workers from these potentially dangerous tasks. In its investigations, the division finds, uh, commonly finds young workers under the age of 16 working outside of federally allowed hours and workers under 18 assigned to prohibited or hazardous occupations and employers failing to keep accurate records for youth workers. Coria added that unfortunately, we sometimes learned that an employer violated the law only after a child suffers an injury. And that's one of the re- one of the one of the consequences of the right wing assault on uh, uh, on the government, on the uh, actions of government. One of the consequences is that the Department of Labor does not have adequate staffing to routinely inspect and routinely give out these trainings to ensure that employers are following the law and ensure that workers are safe. One of the consequences is that sometimes the Department of Labor only learns about violations of child labor law after an injury. Coria added that failing to comply with the laws that protect minor safety is irresponsible and illegal. Part of the division's focus on enforcement of child labor regulations is intended to prevent recent incidents involving injuries suffered by young workers, including the life-changing injuries suffered by an underage worker in Florida illegally employed to work on a roof, and hot oil burns sustained by a McDonald's worker illegally assigned to use a fryer in Tennessee. The U.S. Department of Labor is determined to prevent child labor violations and to stop employers from jeopardizing the safety of young workers or harming their ability to keep up with their schooling, Coria added. Coria said, We encourage employers, young workers, and their parents and others to contact us with questions about federal child labor laws. The division offers many compliance resources, including a fact sheet on best practices for employing youth and its Youth Rules website for information on providing youth a positive and safe work experience. 
So here's I will I will give you a lifeline, business owners, if you're interested in in uh, employing children. <laughs> They say, for more information about other laws enforced by the division or to report a violation, contact the toll-free helpline, 866-4-U-S-WAGE. That is 866-487-9243. Calls can be answered confidentially in over 200 languages. So that's a very important resource uh, if you're a boss wanting to make sure that you're following the law, but also if you're a worker who has suspicions that your rights are being violated. Right. Or if you, you know, if you see something, if you're aware of something, uh, you know, I, I am around schools a good bit. And just from what I overhear from high schoolers, uh, you know, I feel pretty confident that there are child labor law violations happening in North Alabama. It seems uh, pretty likely. Oh, yeah. I mean, just just Absolutely. just for folks to know, uh, you can search Alabama child labor laws and you can find, you know, a, a one sheet poster there. Uh, it's not hard to find this information, you know, if you're if you are an employer uh, or if you are a worker. And yep. again, you're not sure if, you know, your rights are being violated or your your uh, child's rights are being violated. I mean, just just so you know, 16, 17, 18 year olds should not be working after 10 p.m. or before 5 a.m. on a mm -hmm. night preceding a school day should not be happening. Uh, otherwise, the rules are pretty flexible. They they don't right. have an hour restriction when school is not in session. Oh, they don't here they, in Alabama. They do not. Uh, if they're 16, 17, 18, no breaks are required. Um, so, you know, that's something that's worth noting 14 and 15 year olds do have more restrictions no more than three hours on any school day no more than eight hours on a non-school day no more than six days per week no more than 18 hours per week not before 7 a.m or after 7 p.m on any day of the week not during school hours of course uh, and that's when school is in session those rules are in right. place but when school's not in session no more than eight hours a day or six days a week no more than 40 hours per week, not before 7 a.m. or after 9 p.m. each day. So uh, for 14 and 15 year olds, a documented 30 minute break is required if they are employed for more than five hours continuously. And that's a little bit about the child labor laws in Alabama. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And David, you should chat, follow them. Yeah. David in the chat. Yeah. You should follow the child labor laws. David in the chat asks, why is it businesses stealing wages or endangering child workers is a civil crime and yet stealing from business is criminal? Absolutely. Fines for them and jail for us. And that's absolutely an important thing to remember when you think about employers. Uh, you know, I read from this press release, literally actually harming children in life, impacting life changing ways. Right. An underage worker being employed illegally to work on a roof. Injuries suffered by this person. Hot oil burns sustained by a McDonald's worker illegally assigned to use a fryer. You know, I mean, these are not, you know, the, these are things. And, and if I did this to my, you know, if I had a kid and I burned them with hot oil or I was responsible for them and I allowed them to fall off the top of a roof, I would be sent to jail. I would have my kid taken right. from me. Right, DHR this, would be sniffing around your yeah. place. It would be a, a whole fiasco. And, yeah, it's it's a real double standard there. And we see the double standard in terms of wage theft versus retail theft. Right. Uh, our Alabama legislators and all their wisdom are actually trying to make it uh, 
make even more punishments for shoplifting yeah. uh, because of, you know, alleged shoplifting rings that they're concerned about. And, you know, they want to be able to add even more charges to people and incarcerate more people over shoplifting. Right. But this kind of criminal activity by bosses and employers, which is damaging children, which is stealing from people, you know, it's just a just a civil penalty. Yeah, it's it's a real double standard and it's, it's an injustice in our criminal justice system. Yeah. And, and real freak stuff. I mean, just real, real freak stuff. Um, we do have a caller on the line, but caller, we're going to uh, bring you on in overtime. You wanted to plug this um, this thing about the HB 209 before we wrapped up here. Yeah, right, absolutely. Yeah, because um, HB 209 is a bill that's really got me bothered. Uh, it's something that is irritating me, but it's not just me. It's the Alabama Voting Rights Coalition. It's uh, the League of Women Voters of Alabama. It's, you know, many nonpartisan, nonprofit groups. You know, it, this is not just uh, radicals such as myself who are out here against this bill. House Bill 209 would criminalize providing absentee voting assistance. Okay, so folks who are elderly, folks who are disabled, folks who are ill, folks who are having some kind of issues and need assistance with absentee voting, you know, your friend, your family member, your neighbor, your church member, your union member, mm -hmm. that you may want to help. Maybe you need to give them a ride to go pick up their ballot. Uh, maybe you pick up, you know, the application for them. However, however they may need some assistance to exercise their right to vote. That could be criminalized. That could be criminalized with a felony charge. Mm. So, you know, the League of Women Voters and other nonpartisan groups, they help people exercise their rights to vote, particularly those who, you know, need to vote absentee for whatever reason uh, and may have some challenges in doing that because of uh, disabilities or other issues going on. Okay, and... The activities of like these sweet old ladies who go out and do this work and, it, you know, I'm stereotyping, but by and large, that's what I've observed is, is typically it's retired folks who really are passionate about people's right to vote. Uh, they like to register people to vote. They help people vote absentee. They just want to help people exercise their rights. And, you know, these folks are going to be risking a felony charge much of their activity would no longer be permitted. Uh, every union, you know, in our union, of course, our, our goals is to advance the interest of our, our worker members in the workplace. But part of what we also do is try to have political influence. We try to make sure all of our members have the ability to exercise their right to vote in local, state, and national elections. And again, we shouldn't risk a felony charge by doing that work, by helping our union members vote. It's just, you know, it's just wild. And there is no legitimate evidence of any wrongdoing that this bill is, is seeking to address. And that's Alabama legislature, just classic behavior, an imaginary problem and a bill that's supposed to fix this imaginary problem that creates many very real problems. Yeah. And and that's what this is all, all going to do with HB 209. So I'm really asking folks to uh, to contact your state senator 
it has already passed the state house. Just sad, sad that it's already passed the state house. So contact your state senator, let them know you're against HB 209 because you value a democratic society and you believe people should be able to vote and people should be able to help each other vote uh, free of, you know, criminalization. And with that, we're going to wrap up uh, the show uh, on the radio. I am still tracking you, caller, and we'll bring you on uh, once we get into overtime. So just hang in there for about five more minutes. Um, just a reminder, Labor Notes is doing good good trainings every week. You can find that on labornotes.org. Uh, the Alabama International Finch Festival uh, is taking place May 12, 13, and 14 in the River Region. Uh, and there's going to be a union musical, so check that out. Shop Talk airs on Thursday mornings. Uh, make sure that you tune in on YouTube for that. Uh, and give us a call at 844-899-8857. And uh, we might bring you on the air or respond to your voicemail in the next week. Uh, we're going to be heading into overtime where we are actually going to be talking to the cast behind the musical Toll Puddle about union struggles in 1800s England and a lot of other stuff. So you don't want to miss it. With that, we're going to roll out all power to the workers. See you next week.